As was mentioned at the outset of the announcements, it is a blessing and a privilege we have this evening. In fact, it's an honor to be able to gather in the name of the Lord and to do so with the expectation of honoring and glorifying His name. And certainly tonight, not only our regular membership at Pippin, for those we're thankful, but for all the visitors who've come our way as well, and we trust that each of us can be exhorted and encouraged for the week ahead of us as we, in fact, worship the Lord tonight in truth and in spirit, John 4, 24. As you may have noted in the bulletin, the title of tonight's lesson is The Completely Trustworthy Bible, and the text that was read for us a moment ago from the closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3 is the stage upon which we shall stand as we give some consideration and thought to the trustworthiness, the reliability, if you will, of that book that perhaps you're holding even in your hands or your lap at this point in time. Some introductory thoughts might well be in order as we, in fact, place our discussion this evening. It is true, of course, that that Bible is by far the most special book in all the world. It's, in fact, a compilation of some 66 books, but nonetheless, how special and how valuable indeed is that book. More, more of value, and in fact, it is of the greatest value of any of the books to which the human family has availability. It's amazing to consider, in fact, that number of books that's available to us for study, for consideration, and yet when we consider this one, it truly is unique and a very precious treasure indeed. It will be, in fact, our goal tonight to give some thought to that, Again, based on that wording of 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and following, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Inasmuch as that statement is made about the sacred text, about the Bible, might we in fact approach it from the following standpoint? What are some of the ways that humanity has approached the Bible? And following that discussion, we then will look at some other avenues through which we can look, in fact, at the Bible anew. You might notice I use that word completely in that title, a completely trustworthy Bible. In fact, consider these thoughts with me if you would. The spectrum of ways in which the Holy Scriptures have been considered is, in fact, varied. There are those who look upon the Bible with a great deal of hostility. They, in fact, militantly oppose what is found in the sacred text of the Word of God. They not only have no interest in it, but they are convinced that this, in fact, is a bad idea for the human family. And they, if they had their desire, would, in fact, ban and remove all Bibles from this world. Though there may be many whose names might be mentioned, perhaps Robert Ingersoll comes to mind. He was a very vocal individual who not too many years ago, in fact, went around this country giving public lectures, public dissertations as to the untrustworthiness of the Bible and asserted that all should completely remove it, give no heed to it, and in fact place it away from them. His speeches were attended by very, very many and in fact, at one point, he even said that within a period of 15 years, the only places that one shall find a Bible is in the morgue. Well, it has long been more than 15 years. Mr. Ingersoll is long since dead and gone, and the Bible is still before us. You may, however, give thought that there not only are those in that category, 
There are also those who are not militantly opposed to it. It's just that they consider it to be a compilation of stories, fables, and myths. They basically put it on the same level as a mother goose. There may be some good advice within it, but they do not appreciate it to be the authoritative, inspired, infallible Word of God. For these individuals, they may turn to it and look upon it again as a source of some nice statements, a nice piece of literature, but it is not an inspired guide from heaven, at least in their mind. I would submit that as you give thought to those in that category, the ways in which they so often look upon the historical features of the Bible is that they are exaggerated accounts. Someone had a desire to in fact tell a story that had a point to it and that's what they think most of the interesting sections of the Scriptures in fact are. Of course, as you give thought to those categories, there is of course a dramatic category remaining. Those individuals who do look upon the Bible as the literal actual Word of God. It is those individuals who look upon it not as a collection of exaggerated stories, not as a mere group of fables or myths, but rather as the God-breathed, given Word of God. Theonoustos, 2 Timothy 3.16. In that very text, in fact, that is the Greek word that's appearing. Theonoustos, literally God-breathed. God spoke these things. He provided them, these people believe, and they will stand four square upon the proclamations and declarations of this book despite anything else. Look at some of the things the Bible says about itself. Perhaps that would be a useful thing for us to consider. Where does the Bible place itself in these categories? It was David who in 2 Samuel 23, 2 said, "...the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue." David vocally, powerfully, and directly said on that occasion, The Spirit of God speaks by me, and His Word is in my tongue. When David penned those things that he wrote, he knew well that by inspiration he was writing them. He was guided by the superintending influence of the Holy Spirit, and it was those words with the very character of God's presentation that he was writing. That, of course, is a powerful thing to notice. And wasn't Jeremiah in a similar circumstance? In Jeremiah 1, when God commissioned Jeremiah in light of the labor and work that was yet before him, he said, Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak, Jeremiah 1.7. And thus on that occasion with the great labor that was now before Jeremiah, for 40 years he would in fact labor amongst the people of Judah, encouraging them to repent and warning them about the captivity coming their way if they did not turn back to the Lord. They had turned their back upon Him and Jeremiah told them so. But might we notice two verses later in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, Behold, God said, I have put my words in thy mouth. Jeremiah was thus bequeathed with the words of God. Not merely God's estimations, not merely God's thoughts, and certainly not Jeremiah's thoughts. It was God's thoughts in God's words, and that was what Jeremiah was commissioned to preach. And isn't it amazing to notice the boldness, the courageousness, and the directness with which he preached that message? So often a message that would bring him trouble and turmoil from the perspective of humanity 
imprisoned though he was, in fact, so often counted a, trees, a traitor by those that were his kinsmen. And yet Jeremiah would preach the word. And he would do so with a tear in his eye as he desired the people to not only hear it, but to give heed to it. No wonder he's so often called the weeping prophet of Judah. Jeremiah 9 verses 1 and 2. It might be at this point you and I can appreciate so many other passages that might be mentioned. We've already looked at that text in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. But perhaps one final passage to consider at this point. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, where again the holy text is referenced. And in this position is described like this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Even Peter thus by inspiration reminded us that those writers were directed by the Holy Spirit and what they wrote was not their feelings or their impressions. It was in fact the literal, actual, completely authoritative Word of God. With those kinds of thoughts as a bit of a prelude to what's going to follow, you might notice that if the Bible is indeed from God, and all of these texts say that it is, would it not then be expected that the Bible is true? That everything in it should be exactly accurate and correct. There should be no mistakes. There should be no discrepancies. There should be no errors. Because if God's the author of it and He is a God of truth, and the text says He is in Deuteronomy 32, 4, then what He has penned and provided should also be true. Doesn't the Bible affirm that it's true? In Psalm 119, verse 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and Thy law is the truth. Not many verses earlier, in verse 128 of the same chapter, I esteem all thy precepts in all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Perhaps all of that takes us to the words of our Savior Himself. On the night prior to His crucifixion, while He was laboring so in the Garden of Gethsemane, He wrote, and He said, in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I would ask that we tonight take a bit of a journey as we move our way through the Holy Scriptures and check on some things. Look at some things in perhaps a bit of a new perspective and ask, is the truth embedded in that passage? In the ways that you and I are able to check it, to do so with some degree of analysis, is it true? And I might suggest that if we find the answer to be yes that should give us an even greater degree of confidence and trustworthiness in the sacred text because isn't it amazing that there are some ways in which you and I can check it. Let's do that beginning in the following way first. First of all, might we give some thought to history as well as archaeology? Might we again notice, here are some ways in which the human family by investigation and study has found some things, and you and I now can ask, is what has been discovered in harmony with what the Bible has said? Our goal again is to ask, isn't the Bible worthy of being checked like other books?
If we go to a library here in town and we check out a book, we have every right to check that author against other sources, against other pieces of information. What might we say about the holy text of the Bible? Might we begin in Joshua chapter 6? In the ancient days, we learned directly from that rather compelling chapter that the children of Israel had now crossed into the land of Canaan and the first major city that was their opposition was the city of Jericho. And we learned that as Joshua arrayed his forces against that city, he did so by the directness and also by the order of God. It was not Joshua's military strategy. It was God's commandment. You march around the city once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day you march around it seven times. All the while as you march, the priests will take the Ark of the Covenant along, and there will in fact be individuals ahead of them blowing trumpets. And then once you have finished that seventh traversal on that seventh day, all the people will shout, and the walls of the city will come falling down flat, and you shall go up into the city and conquer it. There isn't a military general alive today that would say that was a wise military strategy in its own right. But yet, that's exactly what Joshua did. And it's exactly what the children of Israel did. And when they did so, the walls fell down flat, the text says. In the verses that followed, we learn, in fact, that the people proceeded to destroy the city. They burned it, in fact. And in fact, there was a curse placed upon anyone that would strive to rebuild it. With all of that described and said, you and I might now ask, as those who are skilled in that work have approached the excavation of the ancient city of Jericho, what have they found? Consider this information with me. Dr. John Garston, in the years 1929 and following, did extensive excavation in the area of ancient Jericho. And these are some of the things that he discovered and found. First of all, he discovered by careful and meticulous effort that in fact, in 1400 B.C. or thereabouts, the city was destroyed, dovetailing perfectly with the time frame of Joshua. Interesting, isn't it? But that isn't all he found. He found that the walls of that city had in fact fallen down exactly as the text described. In fact, there were two walls to ancient Jericho. There was an inner wall and an outer one. And they were connected by houses that, in fact, were built upon top as the connecting things between them. And you and I might remember that's exactly as the biblical text describes it because Rahab's house was on the wall. But not only that, he discovered that as those walls had fallen down flat, which is what he found, he began to dig a little bit more and noticed that there was a large layer of ash as if the city had been burned, exactly as the biblical text describes. And as if all of that isn't enough, by digging beneath the rubble and looking underneath that, he also discovered these extensive storehouses where there were foodstuffs and other things that seemingly were untouched. All you and I need to do is read Joshua chapter 6 to appreciate what those may well have been. For after all, God had placed upon the children of Israel a warning, Do not touch the accursed thing. They were not to take anything out of Jericho except what God had commanded to be placed in the treasury. 
such as the gold and silver, nothing else they were to take. So all of those vast repositories and storehouses of food and other things would have been left untouched, exactly as Dr. Garsting discovered. Question, if archaeology and history seems to match perfectly what the biblical text has written down so long before an archaeologist discovered, doesn't it give us even greater confidence and greater trustworthy reliability in the claims of the Bible? But yet another example this time from the New Testament. As we look into Acts, the 19th chapter, we remember a compelling episode in which Paul and his companions found themselves in that ancient, well-known city of Ephesus. And while there, there was an uproar that took place because Paul preached against Diana, the goddess, not only of the city of Ephesus, but one of the most well-known goddesses of the ancient world. Folks from all over would come to Ephesus and worship her in that well-known temple of Diana, which was, in fact, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But you and I, as we notice the way that chapter unfolds, as Paul's companions were brought into a particular arena of the city, the text on two occasions calls it a theater. This was a large, open, public place wherein discourses, lectureships, and other things could take place. That, of course, leads us to question. As those who have taken the liberty of discussing and excavating ancient Ephesus, what have they found? Beginning in 1869 and on many occasions since, many individuals have found some of the following things. First of all, many trinkets and other things directly tailoring to Diana have been discovered just like the Bible says that, that took place. And in addition to that, the theater has actually been found. The theater of ancient Ephesus, exactly as the Bible describes it, a large open place where multitudes could gather and hear discourses, discussions, or other matters, exactly as the book of Acts, in fact, unfolds it for us. As you give some thought to those things, you'll notice that even that temple, that centerpiece, that again, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, even matters of it have well been discovered and found. You see, the Bible had proclaimed these things and set them forth in such clarity and directness. And yet, those who have taken the liberty to study it have found that it's exactly as the Scriptures portray it to be. All of that helps us to perhaps consider two more items, one of which is the Old Testament kings. You and I are familiar with there are many kings listed in the Old Testament. Some of them are kings of Israel. Some of them are kings of Judah. Others are foreign kings of Egypt, Babylon, Persia, and other places. It certainly would be expected then that if there were any secular records of those kings, and if the Bible was right, then the Bible should state exactly what these other records are stating. But it is in that regard I would mention two of those kings. One of them is Omri, one of the kings of ancient Israel. He was so well associated, of course, with the days of Ahab. But as you and I read the Old Testament, that name Omri may just seem to be a name passing in the night. You can imagine, though, how interesting that all appears when we compare what we know from the Bible about Omri 
with such evidences as the Moabite stone, which was discovered in the later part of the last century. As those who, in fact, read the writing on that stone, they found mention of a man named Omri, and it tailed exactly with the Old Testament record in terms of his conquers, in terms of the ways in which he fought other countries. But as if that wasn't enough, give some thought to Uzziah. He's mentioned for us in Second Chronicles 26. We find that this king of ancient Judah was a man who in fact lifted himself up highly at one point in his life and God in fact made him to be a leprous man. We do read about his death and believe it or not, his tombstone has been discovered. I would ask each of us to think about the evidences that has been presented to us in regard to the thoroughness and the complete reliability of the wonderful Word of God. As you come near the bottom of that slide, there are even some things in which the Bible has set forth the truth on matters that has actually corrected the human family on more than one occasion. I say that because there are at least two kings, and I mention one of them. As one reads Isaiah, the 20th chapter, we find directly mentioned a man whose name was Sargon. And he is said to be a king of Assyria. Sargon, a king of Assyria. In no uncertain terms, his name is set forth. Now, the question is this. Those who are the so-called scholars of ancient Assyrian history, up until 1843, there was not the slightest mention of a man named Sargon. And many had led themselves to the conclusion, this book has made a mistake. There are no records of a man named Sargon. They knew about Shalmaneser. They knew about Tiglath-Pileser. They knew about the others the Bible mentioned, but they, in rather directness and with quite confidence, asserted that the Scriptures have made a mistake. Lo and behold, there were many things that changed in 1843 because not only was there evidence from the spade of the archaeologist that confirmed the existence of a man named Sargon, he was said to be exactly what Isaiah said that he was. Not only was he a king, but Isaiah 20 verse 1 describes him and some of the efforts that he underwent as king of Assyria. And that which they discovered was his palace. And the records in it matched exactly the record of Isaiah. May we suggest the Bible was right all along. Not only with regard to Sargon, but others, of course, could be listed and mentioned and we will consider some more as the lesson unfolds this evening. So far, we've looked at history and archaeology. What about some other things, like geography? Again, might we be so quick as to say that if God is a God of truth, and if this is His Word, we would expect that even in reference to geography, it should be correct we will only look at a very, very few references. But might we say there are hundreds of geographical references in the Bible. Rivers, mountains, compass directions. We would expect every one of them to be correct and right. Let's look at just a few of them. We might well begin in Acts 15.1. When on that occasion we are directly told that there were brethren who went down from Judea to Antioch. And that's something that you and I can check. 
is Antioch lower in elevation than is Jerusalem? Any of us could proceed to a map and check. Is that correct or is it not? Yes, indeed, that is correct. In fact, Antioch is well over a thousand feet lower in elevation than Jerusalem. So on that occasion, the Holy Scriptures are correct in as much as it gives the correct reference that they traveled downward to go from Jerusalem to Antioch. But we might well ask another. From Genesis 12, verse number 10, it is there said that Abraham went down from Canaan to Egypt. Is Egypt lower in elevation than Canaan? That's something, again, that you and I could consider. The answer, again, is yes. Several hundred feet in elevation separate Canaan from, in fact, the land of Egypt. Those two are just a small sampling of those that might be considered, but look at a third one. You'll notice that Jesus, as He spoke about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 15, He expressly said that this man went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Question, is Jericho lower in elevation than is Jerusalem? The Lord said that the man traveled down. And you and I might notice this is one of the most precipitous travels in all of the record of the Bible. Because we might remember there were other things about that journey. It says that the man, remember, was beaten and robbed. It says he was left for half dead. Yes, indeed, it is down from Jerusalem to Jericho by an amazing 3,300 feet. It is a steep, rather dangerous journey. No wonder this particular man was able to fall into such dire straits. Robbers would hide behind the crevices and rocks along that journey and they would pounce upon unwary travelers. And so indeed what the Lord described was a well-known matter in that day. In the fourth place, in Colossians 4.16, Paul leaves the definite impression that Laodicea and Colossae were very near each other. Both were well-known ancient cities. Were they in fact near one another? Yes, they were, between 20 and 25 miles apart at most. And hence, no wonder one of them could read the epistle that Paul, in fact, directed to the other. They were, in fact, to read the corresponding epistles that had been directed to their sister city. Isn't it amazing to consider the correctness and the reliability of the Word of God? Even in these things, you and I can check. Perhaps a fifth one. You'll notice that in John chapter 18, it says that the Lord crossed through the Kidron Brook as He ascended the Mount of Olives, having in fact left the city of Jerusalem. And so a question might be asked, is there a brook known as the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook that separates the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem? And is it in the correct direction of traveling eastward? Yes, it is. It matches completely perfectly and identically, even in the description that the Bible gives of where the Mount of Olives was and in the various features associated with the Lord's traveling from Jerusalem out of the temple complex up the Mount of Olives to that place where ultimately He would pray. It will be our note then in Lord of all of that to appreciate one more, which may seem to be fairly more indirect, but nonetheless, we would expect the Bible statements to be correct no matter how thoroughly we check them. 
Here's one that's more challenging to check, but you'll notice it again checks so beautifully. In Mark chapter 6, when the Lord fed the 5,000, there's a very clear reference to the fact that Jesus gave them command to sit upon the green grass. That alone tells us, at least in basic character, of what seemingly the correct time of year was for that event to take place. But another thing to notice, all four gospel accounts give us the record of the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them recorded. And hence, it should be the case that any of the others should also give us a time frame in the season of the year that matched the fact of there being green grass. Otherwise, there would be a contradiction. As you look into John's gospel account, we find in John's description that this occurred at the season of the Passover. It was that time of year, in fact, when you and I would call it the spring season of the year, corresponding to our April. Is the grass green in that part of the country and in that part of the world in April? Yes, it is. And so Mark's account so innocently harmonizes with John's, and we see that harmony highlighted even in this subtle reference as the green grass of Mark 6.39. It's an interesting thing to appreciate, isn't it, that we do have a completely trustworthy book. We've looked slightly tonight at some archaeology and history, and we've also considered some features relating to the matter of geography. Might I ask you to notice some of the political issues raised in the Bible? Are they too accurate? Is it a correct synopsis of what we have been able to find by correct evidence from archaeological work? Let's begin, if we might, with the existence of some ancient peoples, the Hittites. I've listed some references in which those are found. They are listed in Joshua 1 verse 4 as well as 2 Kings 7 verse 6. And there are many others besides them. But especially that 2 Kings reference is of such noble quality that we learn in that passage that these Hittites were of such great strength that they in fact pursued the Israelites. They were that strong. But that raises a problem or at least it did up until one point, there was not a single extant reference to the Hittites anywhere in secular history. And so again, there were many who felt that the Bible was incorrect. That this people had just been made up as some legendary opponent to God's people and God's people finally defeated them. But all of that changed in the middle part of the 19th century, you see, when the Hittite capital was discovered. Can you imagine how quickly the mind of the biblical critic had to change when not only were Hittite records found, but their capital city was discovered. And again, it was found that the Holy Scriptures in its description of them matched what evidence was presented by virtue of their discovery in this city in Turkey. It might well be noted that as the Bible was right on that occasion just as it had been right with respect to geography and just as it had been right with respect to history, you'll notice that we might also make note of another class of people, even besides the Hittites. These are mentioned much more infrequently. In Genesis 14.6 as well as Genesis 36.21, 
we find reference to a group of people called Horites. H-O-R-I-T-E-S. Horites. And again, one might question, since so little evidence was existent with respect to them, who were these people? Did the Bible writer make them up? Were they just some legendary, mythical group of people that never really actually existed? All of that changed again when there were some actual Egyptian records found that mentioned Horites and did so in exactly the way that the Holy Scriptures mentioned them in Genesis 36. It is a fascinating enterprise, isn't it, to appreciate the completely trustworthy Bible. I might submit tonight we have just scratched the surface at looking at the ways that the Bible can be checked, at least in a few areas that we call human efforts, like geography, and every time it is found to be correct. In light of all of that, might it not then be fair to say this, that those Roman governors mentioned at the bottom of that page, the New Testament mentions many of them, people like Pilate, Quirinius, Claudius, and others, do we have actual historical Roman records that match that there were people by those names and that they reigned where the Bible says? They again match on every occasion. Inasmuch as these thoughts have been stated, isn't it fair perhaps then to conclude this? If it is the case that the Bible is accurate in all of these ways that you and I can check, such as geography, history, political science, and archaeology. If it is the case that the Bible is accurate in those things, what approach should be taken toward those arenas in which you and I cannot check it? There, are, in fact, are many things the Bible reveals that you and I are not at liberty to check. Things that happen after death, we can't check that now. The time will come we will experience it, but we cannot check it now. But if the Bible is right in all these ways, should it not be trusted when what it says about those things too? And when the Bible says there is but one way to heaven, if it's been correct in all these ways that we can check, should we not trust it in those ways it says is the one and only God to heaven? In fact, when the Bible says there is a heaven, and it does in Revelation 22, should we not trust it? And when it says there's a hell... Should we not trust it? It's been right in all these other ways. And so, in light of those matters, may I suggest we each have a renewed appreciation for the trustworthy Bible. In fact, it's completely trustworthy. In these ways that we've studied tonight, we in fact may look briefly in another lesson at some of the other avenues that touch other enterprises of human endeavor and find again that the Bible is also correct in those ways. Some of them, quite frankly, perhaps to some might be more impressive than some of these because they touch matters that have only been discovered in recent years. Tonight, where do you and where do I stand then? Are we trying to play games with the Bible, hoping that it's not really right, hoping that there really isn't going to be a day of judgment? There's going to be a day of judgment. Romans 14, 12 says there will be. And Acts 17, verse 31 affirms the character of what that day will be like. And Revelation 6, 17 says many that day will be found lacking and wanting because they will not have lived in a way that they will be found ready and pleasing by God. We cannot take that chance. 
In wisdom, we just cannot take that chance because the Bible is right. Tonight, have you obeyed the gospel plan of salvation? Have you, in fact, brought your life into open compliance with all that the Bible has said? God sent His Son into this world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. John 3, 17. That salvation is given to us in the precious words of the gospel. We are called by that gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. The Lord is calling you tonight. If you need to respond publicly to, publicly to it, because you never yet have at this point have done that, don't delay, don't put that off. Because the Bible is right. And it says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Proverbs 27.1 To put that in our common language, we don't know that we're going to have tomorrow. We don't know what the character of that morrow might be. The morrow may come, but you and I may not be here. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 And tonight, if you are a faithful member of the body of Christ... Keep in mind, it is that body only that will be saved, Ephesians 5.23. So if you aren't in that body tonight, why not make yourself that way or allow the Lord to make you that way? He will add you to the church as you respond in faith to the gospel invitation. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8.24. You must repent of the sins in your life, for they've what separated you from the Lord, Acts 2.38. You must confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God. To do that puts you in the same category as that marvelous statement of Acts 8.37. And then to be baptized for the remission of sins. When that eunuch was baptized, he came up rejoicing. You can in fact come up out of this watery grave rejoicing too. Once you have become a member of that body of Christ, live faithfully until death. Revelation 2 verse 10 and the crown of life is promised unto you. If tonight we could pray upon your behalf for rededication, for in fact a source of strength, we'd be honored to do that. This evening we do have in our possession the completely trustworthy Bible. Every statement it makes is inspired of God. For indeed we still learn and we still read that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. To what end? That the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Tonight, if you need to respond to that completely trustworthy book by obeying that plan of salvation, why not do that while together we stand and while we sing?